Shalom, everyone. Good evening. Isn't it good to be in the room together? I was worshiping the Lord here and just getting right into it. And you folks watching online, you're having a great experience, no question. But if you could only be in this room and experience the uh, tangible sense of the presence of God when we're together. And so uh, if you're in Jerusalem or close by and you can join us next Sunday, that'd be great. We'd love that. Well, we're in a difficult time, aren't we? Um, my wife and I have been here almost 38 years. We've been here during a second Lebanese war. We've been through two intifadas. We were here in the Gulf War when what we thought might have been uh, chemically, uh, chemical-tipped uh, rockets were sent from Iraq against this country, and they landed here, and God protected the, the nation in a very special way. Uh, we were here in 2014 when rockets, uh, thousands, 5,000 rockets dropped on Israel from Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Um, I'm just putting all that into perspective. I, I believe that this is a very challenging time, maybe the worst that we've experienced, at least in my lifetime, but it could be that this too will pass and there will be times of uh, peace, maybe times of security like we've never seen, or this turns into an all-out war and uh, nations from all around Israel will join in. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future, right? God himself. I want to pray before I preach a message that I've entitled, Ruth and the Redeemer. Lord, we come to you tonight. We thank you that you're our, the one, you're the one who's the guard. Uh, you watch over us. You protect your people. Thank you, God, that you can turn away rockets and riots and bring security to this land. And we ask you to do that. We pray for the least amount of loss of life and harm to anyone on either side that ultimately we'll be able to talk to one another and look to you for a strategy for peace going forward. As impossible as that seems, Lord, we look to you, our Prince of Peace. Amen. Well, uh, Pastor Daniel and Jaylene Geppert, who pastor our congregation in Herzliya, King of Kings Herzliya, spent most of the night last night in their bomb shelter with their two little girls. Some have wondered whether we should even have a service in this sanctuary this evening, thinking maybe it's going to be too dangerous. Well, let me just tell you, I think we're in the safest spot in all of Jerusalem, if not all of Israel. We're two floors underground, folks, and these huge pillars around us. And I'm reminded of the verse that the Lord gave me 16 years ago to name this sanctuary, the pavilion. And it's Psalm 27 and verse five. And it says, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. So I hope you're gonna feel safe tonight in this pavilion. For religious Jews tonight, it's that night on the calendar where they're gonna do an all-nighter. Uh, reading passages from Exodus and Deuteronomy and Ruth. They'll be not just reading, but study all night. Many Messianic congregations around the world are doing the same. And if you really want to stay up all night, then let me preach all night. Do you mind? 
We're going to do the whole book of Ruth tonight. No, I'm going to keep it really short. But you can probably go online, watch a live stream, or get on a Zoom call with a congregation somewhere where they're going to do an all-nighter reading through this glorious book, the book of Ruth. It's not the first time I've preached from this book. I've usually focused on Ruth and Naomi. But tonight, I feel the Lord leading me to speak to you mostly about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and how he foreshadows in remarkable ways the ultimate kinsman redeemer, our Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, we know that on this date, traditionally, on Shavuot, which is starting in about another hour at sundown, that rabbis say that was when the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And many say that at Mount Sinai, that covenant that was made with the children of Israel was actually a marriage covenant. That's important for us to understand, especially as I share about Boaz in a few moments. God has a very special relationship with this nation, his treasured possession, the apple of his eye, the one whom he has called my chosen ones, my children, and even says my bride and my wife in many places in the scriptures. Now, instead of reading the whole book, I'm going to tell you highlights of the story, and then eventually when we get to Boaz, I'm going to take some of the verses, read them word by word, and help us understand the role of Boaz as kinsman redeemer and how he foreshadows our Savior Yeshua. So here's the story. It was the time of the judges before there were any kings in Israel, and there was a famine in the land, especially in an area, the territory of Judah, and in particular where it's mentioned in the text, Bethlehem, Ephrata. And in Bethlehem, there was a Jewish man by the name of Elimelech. Interesting his name, it means my God, my king. Well, Elimelech didn't have a lot of trust in God, his king, for he took his wife Naomi and his two sons and took them to Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea. And there they lived for 10 years. Now he died while there and his two sons died as well. But they went to a land where they worshiped many gods, even though his name was Eli Melech. It's interesting that Bethlehem was the place from which he left. Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Well, there was no bread in Bethlehem. There was a famine and he got desperate. Now, there was some bread, I'm sure, but not enough, he thought, to feed his family. Now, Naomi became bitter because of the death of her husband, Elimelech, in Moab, and the death of her only two sons. So she decides to return to her homeland, to Bethlehem. Already, we're starting to see a prophetic picture about God's plan of redemption, to redeem his people, first of all, from exile in another land and bring them back to their homeland here in Judah or Israel. So she decides to leave her exile and come back to Bethlehem. Now at first, both Naomi's daughter-in-law, both Naomi's daughter-in-laws begged to immigrate to Israel or to Judah with Naomi. Well, 
these young ladies would not easily pass the test of the Ministry of Interior here. Uh, they were non-kosher, I mean, totally non-kosher Moabite women who had somehow married these Jewish sons of Naomi. Now, in the end, after much pleading, weeping, stubbornness, Ruth convinced Naomi to allow her to return with her to Judah and Bethlehem, while Orpah, and I'm not talking about Oprah here, Orpah, her sister, went back to Moab and served other gods. In the end, after much pleading, we see that Naomi allows her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to come back to Judah with her. And Ruth makes this remarkable pledge. She says this in our text in chapter one of Ruth, verses 16 and 17, saying to Naomi, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. So Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem. It's around the time of Passover for the text says it's at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Ruth, in order to help both her mother-in-law and herself to survive, took up the privilege that she would have as a stranger and a poor person to glean behind the reapers in the barley harvest. On the edges of the harvest field and any sheaves that might have fallen as the harvesters were taking those sheaves to the barn, that stranger could pick them up and Ruth was one of those. She happened to come to the part of a field belonging to Boaz, just happened to, it says, it just happened in the text. Well, I, I think that was a God incident, not a coincidence. It just happens to be that Boaz was the extended member of her mother-in-law's family, or Elimelech, her father-in-law's family, and he was considered what's called a kinsman redeemer. And now the plot thickens. So from this point, I'm gonna focus the spotlight on Boaz. Boaz metaphorically plays the part of a man who will also come from Bethlehem, also from the tribe of Judah, the Messiah. Some rabbis say that the whole book of Ruth was written to reveal Boaz's connection with King David. And in fact, the final few verses of this book is a genealogy ending with David. In hindsight, with our 2020 vision, we understand that Yeshua's genealogy was also tied to David. In fact, he would be the son of David. He would be the Messiah from David's line. And I'm convinced that God sovereignly arranged this, horror, uh, this historical account in Ruth to reveal his son and his plan to use Yeshua as his ultimate redeemer and savior of the world. Now, as we continue the story, my focus now is on Boaz, as I said. I'm gonna show these comparisons between Boaz and Yeshua. Number one, Boaz and Yeshua were both from the tribe of Judah and from Bethlehem. This is what it says about Boaz's close relatives, the sons of Elimelech, 
who married Ruth and Orpah. In Ruth chapter one, verse two, it says that they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, of Judah. And we know that Boaz's grandson was Jesse, and it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12, now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And then later, in Micah chapter five, verse two, there's a prophecy concerning the Messiah to come who will come from that same place. It says this, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That's a prophecy about Yeshua, isn't it? Number two, Boaz and Yeshua both had godly character traits. We know that no one in the world, no man, no woman has ever been perfect. And certainly Boaz wouldn't have been perfect, but at least from the book of Ruth, we see nothing about his character that is flawed in any way. Look at this, Boaz gives glory to God in a number of occasions in the text. Ruth chapter two, verse four, it says, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. And throughout the narrative, the Lord is central to Boaz's uh, thinking and the way he spoke. Eight verses later, he will say to Ruth, the Lord repay your work and a full re reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel. And then in chapter three, verse 10, he says to Ruth, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. And then in making a vow to Ruth later that if he can qualify as the kins kinsman redeemer, that he would, he says, I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. The Lord was in his mind, the Lord was on his tongue. Oh, I wish that all of us would have the Lord on our minds throughout each day. And often say things to friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters in the Lord. God bless you, the Lord bless you. You know, somebody in this land, a leader, gave her testimony and said that the way she came to the Lord is one day she met a believer and the believer said, God bless you. That's all that believer said. And somehow the Holy Spirit used those words to bring her to put her faith in Yeshua. You never know what our words will do. Our words are powerful and the word of God does not return void, but it accomplishes everything that God sets it out to accomplish. Now we know that Yeshua had the heart of the Father throughout his ministry and life and, and he would often speak of the Father and he had an intimate relationship with the Father and always ready to do the Father's will and they were one as we know. Number three, Boaz and Yeshua both showed kindness to the outcast. We continue reading now from Ruth chapter two, verse five and following, and it says, then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Nomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And then later, in the next verse, it's Boaz says to Ruth, do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here. An expression of 
tenderness, kindness to an outcast. Stay in my field. Don't go to anybody else's field. I want you with me. You see, it's surprising in a way because Boaz knew the worst about this young woman. Yet he told her not to leave his field. What was the worst thing about Ruth? She was a Moabite. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that it was forbidden for an Ammonite or a Moabite from ever becoming part, and I quote, of the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. The Moabites were the offspring of an incestuous sexual union between Lot and his eldest daughter. And the child of that incestuous union was Moab. The rabbis have given enormous amount of attention to the story of Ruth and Boaz. And one of the troubling things they've had to solve is how can it be that Boaz could have anything to do with a Moabite woman, let alone marry her? The most common explanation was that the curse against Moab was against the men of Moab and not the women. In any case, it's very remarkable that Boaz unashamedly shows kindness to this outcast. And here again, we see how he reflects the same quality that set Yeshua apart from other religious leaders who were looking for a Messiah that would rid the land of Israel from the oppressors, the Romans. And instead of pulling off a political coup or a military coup against the cruel Romans, Yeshua showed them kindness, kindness even to his enemies. At a Roman army's officer's request, he healed that man's servant. One day, a Gentile woman from the Roman province called Syria Phoenicia asked Jesus to cast out a demon from her daughter. And he showed kindness and compassion and delivered her from that demon. And Yeshua was not scandalized by his association with women who were usually thought of as second-class citizens in those days, and even Gentile women, and even a woman who was part of a people group hated so much by the Jews, the Samaritans. Yeshua and Boaz were the epitome of kindness to the outcast. Now, Ruth knew that she was a total outcast, and so she was shocked at the kindness of this man, Boaz says this in Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. She, so she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz did not shoo away Ruth from lying at his feet. After, we read this in, in chapter 3, verse Verse seven and following. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing for you are a close relative. A few verses later, Boaz says to Ruth in verse 13, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he, that is the other closer relative, will perform the duty of this close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning. 
Now, clearly, the details of this part of the story could lead some to think that there was some kind of immoral dimension to this encounter. And yet, there's no indication that her bold approach to lay at his feet had to do with any sexual attraction or wanting a sexual act. Boaz was like Joseph, another type of the Messiah who resisted any sexual temptation with Potiphar's wife when the two of them were alone. And in fact, Ruth, if Ruth had seduced him or tried to, he wouldn't have said to Ruth in chapter three, verse 11, I will do for you all that you request for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Speaking of lying at one's feet, Yeshua allowed a woman to pour perfume on his feet and then dry his feet with her hair. And this Mary, Miriam, was a prostitute, not exactly as virtuous as Ruth. Philippians chapter two, verse seven says concerning Yeshua that he made himself of no reputation. He was accused of being a party animal, a drunk, a glutton, and someone who would hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors. But these are the very kinds of people he came to save. Yeshua said in Luke chapter five, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And to win sinners' hearts, he needed to get close to them and not shun them. And so we've seen so far three parallels between Boaz and Yeshua. Number one, both he and Yeshua were from the tribe of Judah and from Bethlehem. Number two, Boaz, like Yeshua, had a godly character. And Boaz, like Yeshua, showed kindness to the outcast. And now, finally, to this fourth parallel that foreshadows Yeshua, our Messiah. And that fourth parallel was he was a kinsman redeemer. I haven't talked much about what that means yet, and now I will. Biblical laws demonstrate a number of responsibilities of a redeemer. The redeemer is the person who's charged with helping destitute relatives, a role that Boaz played in relation to Naomi and Ruth's circumstances. This may mean, back, may mean buying back a property which his nearest relative may have sold because of poverty. And we learn in the story that Nomi sold a property so she could stay alive. And it was the kinsman redeemer's responsibility also to ransom a, kin, a, a brother or a, a close relative who may have sold himself into slavery in order to pay his bills. And we know that God redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery and he refers to himself as your redeemer in bringing them out of their slavery. And there was the responsibility also to act when a next of kin is being unfairly treated, to bring justice in that situation. And a kinsman redeemer may also be required to marry his brother's widow. And let's talk about this latter responsibility. Verse 12 of chapter two, Boaz alludes to how God's desire for his creation is to have his creation experience an intimate relationship with him. Boaz says to Ruth in that text, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Let me read that last part again. A full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. 
to come under God's wings is a euphemism for being married to God. By now, Boaz has found out about uh, Ruth's kindness to Naomi and how committed she was to make Naomi's God her God too. And so Boaz tells Ruth that because of her courageous choices, she will experience this reward of having the Lord as her spiritual husband. That's what Boaz meant when he spoke of coming under the wings of the Lord. It's another way of saying you've come into a marriage covenant with the God of Israel. We see this imagery as God himself is pictured as Israel's husband in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse eight. Listen to this. The Lord says, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord. So it's a common Jewish rabbinic understanding that the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai was a marriage covenant. Now coming back now to Ruth, who has asked Boaz to marry her, Boaz responds saying, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request for the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night in the morning. It shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, lie down until the morning. Now, why did Boaz choose to make this kind of commitment to Ruth? He hardly knew her. Was she irresistible? Did he fall madly in love with Ruth? Well, there might have been some of that. We know that most marriages in those days were arranged marriages. But really, probably the main reason he decided he would marry Ruth was that he was in a position as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. If a Jewish man dies before having had a child from that marriage, then his brother or the closest kin to him was obligated to marry this man's widow. And here we have a picture, I believe, of our savior, our kinsman redeemer, our elder brother, our firstborn among many brethren, as it says in Romans chapter eight, verse 29, coming to our desperate need, paying our debts and supplying everything for life. And God put this law in place in order that the name of the original husband would be carried on through his son. But not having a son, then his name would disappear off the map. You know, let me make this point. How many of you know that God cares about your name? You're not a number, you have a name, and he knows your name. And he wants your legacy to carry on. Well, Ruth's original Jewish husband died in Moab, and she was a widow now, and she was childless. And not only was her husband's name not going to be carried on, when I say she was childless, she, didn't have any more, she couldn't have any more children, but as a widow, she would likely be neglected and mired in poverty. Sadly, that was a widow's destiny, generally in those days. And what were Ruth's options? Only a very near kinsman, a close relative, who could marry her and produce a child and carry on her husband's name. Ruth... And Naomi clearly hoped that it would be this wealthy, upright Jewish man, Boaz, who would be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Just one complication, though. 
As we read, there's a closer relative to Ruth's original husband, and he had the first right of refusal. So Boaz, he goes to the city gate where the elders would gather, where people would make judgments and be witnesses, and he meets that closer relative to Ruth and tells him about his first right of refusal to buy back the land that Nomi had sold in order to keep it in the family. And he added this other thing that he should also marry Ruth if he's going to do this. Well, at first, knowing about the land, he was ready to buy the land. But when he realized he would also be marrying Ruth, he, he said, forget that. Uh, she's going to be a liability to me. It's going to be economically difficult. It's going to be costly for me to do that. And it was at that moment that Boaz had the opportunity to be that kinsman redeemer, that close enough relative to be able to marry Ruth. Many times in the Gospels, in the New Testament as a whole, Yeshua is called the redeemer. And he would have to pay a huge price to redeem us, to buy us out of our spiritual poverty. But he's ready to do it no matter what it costs. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 remind us of the enormous price that Yeshua paid as our Redeemer. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How many of you are thankful tonight that Yeshua came along and said, I want to redeem you. I, I want to marry you. I want you to be part of my bride. Anybody happy about that this evening? That you've been included, some of us strangers, from promises and the covenants to the people of Israel. But God has brought us near through the blood of Messiah. He's made peace. The middle wall of partition has been broken down and we can come as close to our Messiah as any Jew if you're a Gentile, we're included in his family. We're even his bride, the bride of Christ. So how should we respond? I conclude with these four, five practical things to respond, knowing that Yeshua, like Boaz, is our redeemer. Number one, it starts with putting your faith, shall we say your whole trust in the Messiah to be your redeemer and savior. If you've never made that decision, you've never asked him as a word to take you under his wing, to be in that intimate relationship, this would be the night to do that. He's waiting for you. And if you do it, you'll never regret it. Number two, don't fear. We read this in Isaiah 54, verse 4. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will rem not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. When you're in a relationship with God through his son, Yeshua, you're in a place of security. 
You have no reason to fear. Number three, live a holy life of obedience in gratitude for what the Redeemer has done for you. Titus chapter two, verse 14 says, speaking of Yeshua, the one who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Sadly, there are many people that have misunderstood the gospel. And they thought Yeshua came to save them from hell. Or Yeshua just saved them to wipe away their sins. They don't realize that Yeshua came to transform us. To make us holy. To make us special. Set apart. From the ways of a godless world. So let's respond to the Redeemer by living a holy life of obedience. Number four, let's honor him in all that we do. We read that Ruth, Ruth fell on her face and bowed to the ground in her encounter with Boaz. That was not an act of worship, but it was showing honor to the one that was greater than her. And then finally, and it's related to what I just shared, we should respond by worshiping him. And we'll do that in a moment with our phenomenal worship team. Revelation chapter five, verse nine, we're gonna understand one day that there's no retirement in heaven. We're gonna understand one day that the natural response to all of us who have become, who are grateful that he saved us from our destitution, whether spiritually speaking or even in the physical realm, we'll be so grateful for his rescue his redeeming, his ransom for our lives, that this is what we'll want to do. We'll want to worship him forever. Revelation chapter five, verse nine says this, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Let me read that again. As the worship team begins to play, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Can we stand? Can we worship our redeemer this evening? Thank you God for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that anyone in this room who has never come to know you as Lord and Savior, as husband, as the one who cares for every need and loves us with an indescribable love, one who went so far to save us for himself that he went to the cross. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, puts their trust in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. Oh God, Touch the hearts of anyone in this room who's not yet experienced your love in that way. And I pray, God, for each and every one of us who know you, may we never take you for granted or the, the great redemptive work you did on the cross to pay for us, our deliverance from slavery to sin. May we respond, O oh God, with gratitude. May we have a gratitude attitude all the time. And may we be ones who worship you 
not because we have to, but because we get to, because we love you and we're so thankful to you. In Yeshua's name.